Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Susanna Fear, the Vice President of Public Affairs and Marketing for the Elliott Health System in Manchester, New Hampshire. Susanna made a mid-career transition from law to healthcare. Prior to coming to the Elliott, she worked as an attorney specializing in civil litigation, arguing cases all the way to the state Supreme Court. In this podcast, we talk about how she became a lawyer, what it was like to represent clients in court, and then how her prior experience helps her do her job today as a member of the senior leadership team in the Elliott Health System. Susanna explains how she manages communications, both internally and externally, her relationship with the press, and how she prepares members of her organization to interact with the press themselves. Susanna and I had a lengthy conversation, and I think I probably laughed more in this interview than in any other, so I have produced two versions of this podcast— an abridged version, and an extended version. You're listening to the extended version. If you'd like to listen to the abridged version, please check our website for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Susanna Fear. Welcome to The Forge, Susanna. Thank you. Uh, so you graduated from the University of Vermont with a degree in political science. What drew you to UVM and, and why political science? I was drawn to UVM because I'm a graduate of the Stratton Mountain School. And that's a ski racing academy in Vermont. And my, so my high school career was focused on trying to make the U.S. ski team. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Okay. (laughs) And after a couple of accidents and different injuries and the knowledge that I was not going to make the World Cup and an Olympic, you know, debut, I decided that my legs were strong enough and my brain needed some development (laughs) and wanted to stay in Vermont and ski for UVM and attend, obviously. Okay. So were you on the UVM ski team then? I was on the UVM ski team when I first got there. And I I actually very quickly decided that I had such an intensive four years at Stratton, with ski racing being the focus, that I quickly decided that I actually wanted to focus on the academics. And I quit the team. And I just began focusing on you know, the classes that I was taking and what my future would look like. And I used some of my ski racing skills to coach the Special Olympics. Oh, really? Yeah. While you were at school? Yes. While you were in college? Yep. Okay. What's that like? It's really, it's pretty interesting. It's a mix of different parents, okay. um, I hate to say, uh-huh. and some quite responsible for their children. Others see you as the glorified babysitter. And they can't wait for you to take their child. And so that's unfortunate. So I had a, I had a mix, but my athletes were amazing, great kids and a lot of fun, very respectful of me and just thrilled to be on the slopes. So it was a lot of responsibility, but I, I just enjoyed taking something that I had such a skill in and sharing it with people 
who really valued the time with me. Nice. So you majored in political science. What was the interest there? You know, I I think I somewhere in the back of my mind, I, though I wasn't sure, I felt like I wanted to be a lawyer someday. Okay. And that stems from an interesting twist in my high school career. Though I went to Stratton Mountain School and I graduated from Stratton Mountain School, there is a private school in Troy, New York. I'm from Albany, New York. That is called Emma Willard School. And I was also enrolled at Emma Willard. My father's a doctor and my mom took care of myself and my four brothers. And she's a pharmacist. They both really value education. So as I was excelling in ski racing, they wanted to make sure that I was exposed to Homer and reading the Iliad and okay. <laughs> these types of things. Well-rounded. So, yes. Okay. So they had me enrolled at Emma Willard as well. And it's very hard to ski race and be in Europe training in the fall, for instance, and attending classes in Troy, New York at Emma Willard, yeah. as well as being a part of Stratton Mountain School. So it was. it's complicated, but let me put it this way. Very good friends of ours who are lawyers started to fight for me to have the opportunity to stay at Emma Willard when I was home and attend classes. And I found it really interesting at a young age to see what they would sort of think up and and how they were strategizing on my behalf in our kitchen <laughs> when I was home between, you know, Europe and, and being in Vermont up at the school up at Stratton Mountain and and sort of that that fight to do the right thing for me so that I could be exposed to these wonderful teachers and this great education that Emma Willard had to offer. Okay. So I, it sounds a little crazy, but I just was in love with what I was watching and I thought it was really cool that they knew how to take a difficult situation and represent me, you know, it, to the school. So the, it, and it allowed me to stay at Emma Willard. I didn't graduate from Emma Willard, but I, I did make it through junior year taking quite a lot of classes when wow. I wasn't on the slopes. Wow. Yeah. So it looks like after you graduated, you went straight to law school. I did, yeah. Is that right? Yes. And was it Franklin Pierce at the time, or was it... Okay, yeah, so it was Franklin Pierce. Yes. Now it's the University of New Hampshire School of Law. Yes, it is. All right. So when did you kind of make that decision? So you saw these, your family, friends, yeah. uh, kind of working and, and, and demonstrating some skill. When did you decide, this so, is what I want to do? And it's a it's a good question. I So I'm at, up at UVM. I'm taking my political science courses. Then I decide, I, I think I really enjoy the English classes, and I... Maybe I didn't major in the right thing, but I, I wasn't sure. But I was pretty certain I would take the LSAT. Is that what it's called? I got yeah. my memory. LSAT. Yeah, yeah, that was the law school exam. Right. And because my father's such a generous, wonderful man, he's paid for everything up to this point, and which is crazy. He probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but, but I said to him, if I take the LSAT and I get into law school will you pay for it? And I think for him, you know, he probably was, he probably believed that I'd get into a law school, but he played like I wouldn't. So he said, I'll take that bet because you're a better ski racer and you, you know, but what he didn't know is I always, I've always worked. I, I love working and I love volunteering. So I also had 
jobs. So working at a sunglass hut, uh, I worked at the movie theaters like crazy. What I loved working in the movie theaters in college. It's a great way to go because you know who's dating who. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had to scoop on everybody. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> so um, I thought you were going to say because you could get in the movies for free, but that, yeah, no, but no there's it was that a social. Too. That's, it, it was keeping track too, of everybody. All right, having fun watching the hockey players and who was dating. Uh, okay. <laughs> so um, so I had money. Okay. And I used my money, and I didn't tell my father this, to sign up for one of the Stanley Kaplan classes, or you know, and they teach you how to take the test. And there is something to that. So, right. you know, if you have to take some kind of entrance exam for any career you select, study. And, right. and if there's a study guide or a, or a best way to do it, you might want to put a little money into that. I did, and it completely paid off because yeah. by the time I sat for the LSAT, I was so used to taking these tests. But I did pretty well, and I got into many different schools. My mom and I went around looking at them, and then we, you know, I just, I just loved, I love New England. I loved Vermont. I really loved New Hampshire, and I thought that Franklin Pierce at the time was going to be a, a wonderful fit for me because I'm a hands-on person, and okay. I, and I could tell that the experience there right out of the gate in our first year would be quite a bit of you know, hands-on starting to find ways to practice. They have a civil litigation practice within um, the school and that kind of thing. So I was just really, really attracted to what they offered. Oh, neat. So a lot of people with kind of liberal arts backgrounds talk about going to law school. And and I think they most of them have no idea what they're getting into, you know. So was there anything surprising about once you actually got into law school when you were there was – Anything like, oh, I didn't expect it to be like that. I would say, well, it, it probably was harder than I thought mm. it would be, okay. to be honest with you. And I think because for me, once I've set my mind to something, I'm, I'm a quick study and I feel like I usually achieve a pretty high level of, I guess, expertise in whatever I try to do. So it was challenging and it didn't just come naturally. You really have to study the law right. in order to get it in your head and understand it. I was shocked and amazed that I wasn't allowed to have a job. Oh, really? <laughs> I wasn't allowed to work. You're not, okay. not in your first year. Yeah. So what I did, which is just a fun story, is I would go downtown to the district court, and I would sit in court when I didn't have classes, and I'd watch. Wow. And I was there all the time. And so one day the judge stopped the proceeding and asked me to come up to the bench. So and I'm sitting in the gallery. So I was look I looked behind me and I and judge called me up and so <laughs> up I went. I'm thinking, uh oh, uh -oh. I'm in trouble. <laughs> and he said who are you? <laughs> That's <laughs> what awesome. What are you doing here? Yeah, why are you in I my said, courtroom? Oh, <laughs> I go to the law school and I just wanted to watch. I want to see what this is all about. Awesome. Which he said was great. And of course, yeah. then I was very welcome in the uh -huh. court. But he just couldn't figure out if I was a reporter or what the heck I was doing. You just doing kept there. showing up. Who's yeah. this young lady in my, in well, my courtroom? There's no there. better way to learn than see it in action. Okay. You know? Wow. So at least that's how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. So did you keep going back? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Did you yeah. develop a relationship with this judge at all? Or just um, kind of one time? I, no. I mean, Judge Sullivan and I, you know, knew him by, you okay. know, seeing him, but I, yeah. I didn't socialize or anything yeah. like that. But it okay. was. It was just a just neat intro that I kind of forced on myself. <laughs> That's cool. Very yeah. cool. So after graduation, you started as an associate at the firm of Douglas & Douglas. Where was this, and, and what does it mean to be an associate? So Douglas & Douglas is in Concord, New Hampshire. Okay. Um, I, unlike the other 
colleagues of mine in law school in their third year were furiously, so we're all going to study for the bar exam. Okay. People were furiously sending, I don't know how many letters and, and trying to get jobs, land their first job. But I watched everyone getting 30 and 40 letters out the door and not getting jobs. And I thought, eh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to apply for any jobs. I'm just going to study for the bar. So that's what I did. And I stayed in Concord. I lived in Concord. I studied for the bar exam and I applied for one job when it was getting close to taking the bar time. And it was at Douglas and Douglas. And I wanted to work for Chuck Douglas. He is a former New Hampshire Supreme Court judge and he's a former congressman and someone who is known to be an expert litigator. And for me, being in law school then, having finished law school, I, I wanted to litigate. I thought it was the epitome of being a lawyer. Okay. I didn't want to be in a library and looking up, you know, different versions of constitutional law. I wanted to be in the courtroom picking juries. Wow. Okay, so what does it mean to be a litigator? So for me, I, I selected civil litigation, not criminal. Didn't really want to do defense cases, though I had some experience in it. And I wanted to represent people like Polly Rutnick, the, the lawyer that I was talking about in our kitchen, my, my friend's mom. You know, I wanted to be like Polly. I wanted to have that ability to represent individuals in need. And so I went into plaintiff's litigation, which is Chuck Douglas's firm is a plaintiff's litigation firm. And what it means is if you have a problem, you come to me and you say, can you help me? And I look at all the facts and decide whether I can or cannot, whether I have to do it on an hourly basis or whether I can risk my time and represent you on a contingency basis. And for me, I was more than willing to, you know, you, you negotiate in most of these cases. Obviously, you sue someone for what you say is wrongdoing and or negligence. And you negotiate and hopefully you can settle the dispute. But if you can't, you have to be able to pick a jury. There are some lawyers who do not want to do that. So they'll take a case so far and then call and say, Susanna, I'm not picking a jury. You want to take my client? Absolutely. Pick a jury. So I, I'm, I was always willing to do that. I love that part. And I, so, and I did. So I had jury trials and appellate court cases. And, and I just, it's just, for me, that's what being a lawyer is, standing on your feet, representing the interests of other people and, being in court. and fighting for them. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. So I have a couple of friends who are lawyers and, and they're, it sounds like maybe they're more like some of the folks you work with. And, and they have said to me, if I'm in the courtroom, I'm losing money. So they, they don't <laughs> want to be in, they, they, I mean, not that they can't do it, but it, my sense was, and, and these folks mostly work on contingency. So it's, yeah. a, it sounds like, you have a different, you had a different maybe approach to that. That's, yeah. Well, I can see what they're saying, uh -huh. but because if, if you can settle without going into the court, I mean, you can be in the court for in some cases take weeks to try. And that's a lot of time. And then you're not really working on other cases. So you can carry a caseload of however many cases. I don't even remember what I used to carry, but let's just make up a number. Say you have 40 cases going, you know, in a day, if I'm in my office, I can be touching all of those cases at some point in the day and maybe advancing them right. towards a settlement. But if I'm in court, I'm not advancing anything but that one case. But that right? one case, okay. <laughs> but I still think that that's, oh, it's just so much fun. What is, so you, you refer to picking a jury. What does that mean? What is that process like? What so you, uh, picking a jury. Oh, that geez, sounds like you're process. saying that's like a big deal. Oh, it is. Well, okay. you know, it is because the jury is going to decide the fate of the case. Okay. So 
and you don't know these individuals, yeah. but you get information on them. So they fill out a questionnaire and you get the questionnaires. And so this is the pool from which you're going to select your jury. And one of the things I used to like to do is, and this is a trick that Chuck Douglas taught me, which is so cool. You know, a lot of people have a lawyer and there's a question on the questionnaire. Do you have a lawyer? And if so, you know, and some people will write down the name of their lawyer. So if someone, let's say you're a lawyer and then they wrote down Mark Bonica, well, I call you. Hey, Mark, tell me about Sally. Because <laughs> really? I've got a sexual harassment case and I'm going to try and I'm just curious, you know, what do you, what do you think? Will she be, you know, pro plaintiff? Does she not believe in this type of thing? Does she think, you know, suck it up kind of, you know, so talk to the lawyer and you know what? Lawyer to lawyer, they'll tell you a little bit about their client and whether I should pick them for the jury or not. It was a great way to cut through sort of just what they put on paper and talk to someone about uh -huh. And a professional who would yeah. know kind of what, what it is you're getting at yeah. right away. Exactly. Yeah, and then when you're in court and you're actually selecting, you know, they, they call the jurors up and the jurors have to, you know, speak to the judge and say they do or don't have a bias and all that. But you're also, you know, you're sizing them up. You're, you're seeing them for the first time. And, I, you know, looks can be deceiving, I guess. But you just sort of say, mm, I'm comfortable with that one. And, you know, that teacher probably seen too much. They're hardened. They're not going to care about my, <laughs> my client. Uh -huh. I'm just kidding. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, and so it's broadly, what kind of cases? So you said you're civil, not, not criminal. So you're not dealing with. I don't know, people who've committed a crime. Correct. You're dealing with what is, what is Nobody's going to jail. I'm trying okay. to get money. Okay. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to correct a wrong by getting my clients payment for um, either lost wages or emotional distress, damage to, to something, to maybe them, their car or something like that. So I ended up honestly in love with the sexual harassment cases, discrimination cases. Okay. So that's where I ended up with my focus. I mean, civil litigation can include divorce law. And let me tell you what I can't stand. Divorce law is no fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Talk about fighting. Yeah. People don't disagree on the, the bureau in their bedroom and who gets it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to okay. spend my days doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So one of the things I usually ask when I interview a physician is, is, is when did they feel like they were really a doctor? So let me pose that question to you. When did you feel like you were really a lawyer or, a, or an attorney? You know, was it right after you, I mean, when you graduated and threw your cap in the air or was it some point kind of after that? I think I really felt like a lawyer when I was in my first federal her sexual harassment case. So it was federal court. It was a big deal. It's in Concord. And we had a week long jury trial. We won the case. I felt amazing. I felt excited for my client. But the cherry on top was when the opposing counsel was fighting a motion for us to receive attorney's fees. And in those cases, you can receive attorney's fees on top of whatever the jury gave your um, client. And it was Judge Laughlin. He's now uh, deceased. But the attorney was, was arguing that I wasn't worth it, 
that I was a young lawyer just out of school and I wasn't worth the hourly wage that we were charging at the firm. And he called us up to the bench when we were arguing and Chuck Douglas was in the courtroom with me. Now Chuck's got a lot of experience. And Judge Laughlin told the defense lawyer that he thought I did an outstanding job all week long. I deserved every penny that we were asking for. He was going to award the attorney's fees. And oh, by the way, it's probably not good to argue that. Otherwise, you'll get Chuck Douglas's rate. (laughs) (laughs) So I was. I was a young lawyer, and I was winning. And and then I had a federal judge say, you're terrific. Well, that's a nice external validation. (laughs) Yes. Nice. Very nice. I'm pretty sure I felt like a lawyer that day. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you became a director and shareholder at the firm of Robinson, Robinson, and Leonard in 1996. Where was this, and what is it? mean to be a director or shareholder? So um, I left Douglas and Douglas. There was some just internal things taking place there that it just wasn't working out. Though my relationship with Chuck Douglas has always been excellent and I would never say anything but fabulous things about him. I decided, and I was Susanna Robinson at the time. Okay. I decided to go out on my own. I'm afraid of Pretty much nothing. So (laughs) I'm a lawyer. I can hang my own shingle. Right. So that's what I did. My husband and I, so the two Robinson, Robinson, Robinson and Leonard and uh, Kevin Leonard, uh, we just decided this is our time. Uh, We'll hang our own shingle. And the truth is at the time I had my own cases in the firm of Douglas and Douglas. And this is always a hard part about when you, you know, separate who gets the clients. And you don't really want to have a bad parting of ways. But of course, you clients typically want to follow you. And so we had some separation of clients and then many that followed us. So it was fantastic because the clients that followed us obviously helped us launch the firm and continue to do the civil litigation. And, and just what it meant was we we're responsible for everything. It was our business. So now I don't just come to work turn on the lights, work, and go home and wonder, did we pay the bills? Is the utility, is there coffee? You know, who's paying, you know, the receptionist? Now, we own it, and it's a business. So soup to nuts, all in. Okay. Um, Again, not afraid of anything. I thought that was just so exciting. My husband at the time was a little bit sketchy on it, but he's like, you better know what you're doing. (laughs) Did you know what you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Where did you learn the business management portion of what you were doing? You know, it's, that's a, it's a great question. I have no idea. Okay, <laughs> just, but it worked. I, well, it, and it's not be, I, I had worked on my own previously, so even in law school, in the summertime, when everyone went and just got jobs doing whatever they were doing, so one summer I ran my own business, and I ran it in the law school, but it was I took over the whole cafeteria as my own private business, so breakfast and lunch, so then I had to start to, you know, figure out vendors and paying vendors and timing of everything and, you know, getting myself being, so, res- so being wait, responsible the law enough. So the cafeteria to yeah, you yeah. as a private individual. Yes. <laughs> yes. <That's> awesome. <laughs> My father called me when, when it was tax time and he said, you better not have made that much money. I said, oh, no, I have all my expenses. Let me give you all that too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so I just, I think I just am that kind of person. Like wow. I figured out as I go, I'm not afraid to... Yeah. Jump in with both feet and learn okay. sort of as I go. And I think it's 
an exciting way to live life. It just, it's not terrifying to me for some reason. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. So, and you said you continue to do civil litigation kind of work. Correct. Um, and you appeared before the New Hampshire Commission for Human Rights. Mm-hmm. What is that? So that when you initiate discrimination case, you have to file with the New Hampshire Commission for Human Rights. Okay. And it's almost, ugh, let me see my memory. I hope that my memory is right. It's, it's a process by which they basically say, yes, this is real. It's actually a discrimination, valid discrimination type case. Okay. That can then, if we can't resolve it here, that can then be taken into the court, in the circuit court, and you can proceed so to a, a potential... Is it arbitration kind of thing then? Yeah, I recall it being more... Yeah, it's... Oh, gosh. And I may be using the wrong phrasing. No, but, it, it, but it's, it, it really is an environment in which you can resolve discrimination claims. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very bright lawyers that work there and help you, both sides, sort of see what's taking place in terms of the arguments on each side and what the potential is for the case, you you can resolve cases at that level. Some okay. do, some don't. I've had I've had that I've had it happen both ways. Okay. And yes, is it, it is like a mediation. Okay. Is it meant to kind of reduce the caseload in the yeah. in the courts then? And it that plus if if a case reaches the court, it's been through some process of review. Okay. So it is actually not a waste of everyone's time. Okay. You know, the likelihood that there's discrimination here is yeah. perhaps pretty high. Okay. So that probably favors, if it goes past that, it probably favors the plaintiff. Then. Exactly. Okay. Well, you, you feel pretty good when you get the stamp from them. That Okay. And you also appeared at, let's see, you said you, you also did some appellate practice and you appeared at the New Hampshire Supreme Court. Yes, I have. <laughs> what, uh, what, how does a case come to be at the state Supreme Court? What does that mean? Uh, so after jury trial, um, the party that is unhappy with the decision can appeal and bring up whatever issues they believe have to be reviewed by the Supreme Court. So I have had that take place in a jury trial that I prevailed in. It was a sexual harassment case. It was actually against a university, Plymouth State University. I represented Tracy Schneider, and it was a sexual harassment situation and a breach of trust between the professor and the student. It was a very sad story, and the, as I recall, when I when I examined the, was he the dean of students? I think it was the dean of students or the president of the school. When in front of the jury. When we talked about do you or don't you have a fiduciary duty to students, he agreed with me that they do. The argument at the Supreme Court was, on behalf of Plymouth State College, was that there was no fiduciary duty, but we prevailed in front of the Supreme Court. I argued that case, and it's a pretty exciting thing to happen to you that you have case law on the books with your name on it, that you have, you know, New Hampshire law says that Colleges and schools owe a fiduciary duty to their students. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good note to write, write down, <laughs> given where we're sitting right now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, 
So how many, how many, is it, is it, uh, I lack familiarity with how cases actually operate in, in the state. So you had a jury trial at what level? At the circuit at, court. At the circuit court. Yes. And is it the next le- level, the, the Supreme Court? Correct. So in, in the, in, in the state. But there's also a district court okay, level so. as well. So below the circuit court. So there so. are some cases that only go to district court. Okay. Based on the amount of money at, or the lot, all the criminal cases start at district court with arraignments and that kind of thing, I believe. But there may be a civil case that doesn't have monetary value that is the gateway to circuit court. So you can't have a jury trial. You could only have a bench trial. Bench trial means the judge hears and try, hears the case and decides the case. Okay. Um, so that, and that would take place in the district court, at least way back when, if my memory is serving me correctly here. Did all your trials start at district and then move to circuit or did, was this one that went straight to circuit? The cases that I took were always, they were always circuit court cases. They were bigger cases. And that's because of a dollar. Yeah. Right? So I was always okay. suing for major six figures. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> And so, so you went circuit court, and then the appeal would then go to the Supreme Court. Correct. Okay. I mean, it can't just be well. We don't like the outcome. What is it that right that that allows someone to appeal a case? It can't so, be just well, I lost, so now I want another chance. Right. So, so perhaps something like the judge allowed a piece of evidence in that should not have reached the jury. Okay. It ha- typically has to do with rulings that don't favor you. Okay. Or that that this is just not in line with what the law is and is in violation of the law. So it doesn't square with with the constitutional law or some other state law. And so you can argue those things at the Supreme Court and ask for review. And that's what they do. They sit and hear both sides and they've got tons of people helping them and they are astute on the law and then they write a decision that helps explain why they're taking the position they're taking, either to affirm what happened in the circuit court or overrule it and either send it back or tell you exactly how the case now should be, I guess, understood or or overruled or whatever. So it's, you know, I mean, to be honest, I don't recall ever having one overruled. Okay. I've only have, I only recall having my cases affirmed, so... But it's that kind of thing, and and it's a, it's a pretty stressful process when you have to prepare for being in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. So I'd it, much rather be in front of a jury. <laughs> okay. Well, because these why why is that? Well, because I mean, you're in front of judges who are collectively incredibly bright people, and they're peppering you with questions. Uh-huh. So you can't run, you can't hide, you're at the podium, <laughs> and you're there for as long as, I can't recall if it's 10 minutes that you have, there's a light system that, you know, blinks red when your time is almost up. But it's stressful because you really need to study incredibly hard and be prepared on all the areas of the law that you are arguing. And they're just curveballs that can take place there that you're just not ready for. And I'm just, it's a mo, it's exciting. It's stressful. You have to prepare like crazy. It's definitely not for everyone. A lot of lawyers will never go to an appellate court and argue in front of the Supreme Court. But it seems like you like that kind of thing. You like, I, you like I, being in, in <laughs> arguing. I, I seem to like to, well, I love representing people. Okay. And I, and I, I am not afraid of a lot. So 
Am I willing to try it? Yeah. I mean, if I don't like something, I'm not going to go back. Yeah. But, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I, I just found it, I don't know, all these aspects of practicing law, very exciting. Are you just a person who's really good on her feet? Is that kind of... I, I, I guess it... I think so. Uh-huh. I, I assume so because I've sh- kind of shown that. I mean, yeah. even in ski racing, I was, I was a solid ski racer for years. And it's, it's sort of a performance. I mean, you're coming down the hill. It's you and the clock. So it's not like soccer where you have the whole, you know, 11 players playing together. It's you and everybody staring at you and you either perform or you don't. When the judge calls you to, you know, come up and do your opening argument to start a case, you're standing alone in the middle of the courtroom and the jury is looking at you and you better perform. And yeah. I, you know, I, I enjoy that. I don't mind that. I, I think it's not for a lot of people, but it happens to be something that I'm okay with. It helps my golf game. So if anybody's watching me golf, I'm like, oh, I got to perform now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you enjoy most about, about your practice? I guess I, I really enjoyed my, I, I was selective about my clients and I enjoyed my clients and I liked to see them heal through the process. And I liked that when I said, trust me, I'm here to help, the Calvary is coming, that they could and they did, and it worked. And what did you find most challenging about the practice? Oh, it's One of the biggest challenges is time. I was not a mom at the time. So being in the office at 2 in the morning, preparing for the, you know, if you have a week-long or two-week-long trial, you're in, you're in court all day. So when you leave court, there may have been object motions that were filed. You need memos of law that the judge just told you you have a day to produce. So you are physically back in your office, researching law, writing memorandums, preparing for whatever you're doing the next day. And, and whatever, by whatever I mean, who you're going to pick next as a witness what you're going to do for your examination or cross-examination of them. There's just a lot of moving parts to it, and it's a lot of work. So you're easily not getting much sleep and working hours that are pretty extensive. And that was that was hard. And that's what essentially over time led to me having a change of lifestyle. Okay. So... That's actually was my next question. Was, <laughs> so in 2001, you left private practice and became the vice president of the Mary and John Elliott Charitable Foundation. Why did you make that transition at that time? I had an opportunity to change careers, which I think for some people sounds crazy or they would never do that. But when you're a lawyer, you're always a lawyer. I mean, unless you're disbarred. But I'm still a lawyer today. So I can go practice law if I choose to. I had an opportunity to do something that was a career change, but in a field that was exciting to me and something I had been exposed to as a child. So my mom was always fundraising and very involved in the community. My dad's a pediatrician and we didn't have uh, PowerPoints back then. We had flip, you know, flip charts. And my mother would sit me in the kitchen and practice her fundraising, you know, presentations that she was going to give. And I really found our time together to be exciting and fun. And I would, 
critique her on her approach and how she was going to, you know, <laughs> do this and you're not going to get any money, mom. That's not going to work. And so now here I'm, be, I'm faced with this opportunity to say, you know, come on over and join us in the foundation, which is a development position and it's fundraising. And it was a career change that at the, it was the perfect time in my life. I wanted to have a child, having a child and working the way I was in the practice of law felt like it was not going to be fantastic for me. And I love children so much and I really wanted to have a tribe. (laughs) So, so I just, I I just did it. I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to make a heck of a lot less money. I don't care. And I'm going to make a career change because I can always come back. So what is the Mary and John Elliott Charitable Foundation? It is the fundraising arm of Elliott Health System. Okay. And Elliott Health System, most people know as Elliott Hospital, but that's it. They fundraise for the Elliott and only the Elliott. And, and so it's a, is it a separate organization from the Elliott? It and is, how separate? Yeah, how? it is. A, it's a separate 501c3, but it literally is a pass-through. So okay. 100% of the funds donated are given to Elliott. Okay. And serve to, you know, support pediatrics and cancer care and all these wonderful things. You mentioned you had some exp- some exposure to healthcare because your mom was a pharmacist yep. and your dad was a pediatrician. So, had you been involved in any other kind of healthcare delivery up to that point? Um, no, I, you know, I no, I haven't. I okay. hadn't. My, we were in a, I felt like it because we grew up in a house office combination and the patients were physically, oh, really? okay. <laughs> were physically at our house. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but no. <laughs> and had you had development experience other than critiquing your mom and telling her she wasn't going to get any money? I had, my experience was through my volunteerism as a lawyer with the American Heart Association. Okay. So I was on their board and I had chaired the heart walk and different things like that. I mean, I, I, Fundraising came naturally to me as as well, so it, it just wasn't hard for me to ask people for money because if you're passionate about what you're doing yeah. and the charity that you're asking for, it just seems like it's easy. And I understand that people really ha- have a problem with it. Some people don't feel like they could ask you for money. But if I believe in the American Heart Association, for example, or I believe in Elliott Health System and the great work they do for people with issues in cancer or behavioral health matters, whatever the case is, why can't I say, here's what I believe in. Mark, join me. I would love you to support this cause. And here's the great things that are going to happen with the funds that you donate. I don't have a problem with that. Easy. <laughs> so what was, uh, what was the learning curve like moving into the new role? It, the learning curve was more around what you touched on before, that healthcare because it was so, I mean, Elliot's huge. Yeah. So I had so much to learn in terms of that organization and all that they offer for the community. But once I kind of had that figured out, then the real challenge was understanding who's my audience. So who are the donors out there who would be interested in all this incredible work that's being done for the people of Southern New Hampshire? And because that was, because I didn't live in Manchester and I lived in Concord, that, you know, it's not that far away, it's far enough that you really have to understand the community in Manchester. 
I worked hard to get to know some of the shakers and movers who could introduce me to those people who would then become donors. So it took a little bit of time for me to develop all that. Why do people become donors? I mean, I'm assuming you're not talking about, I'll give you five bucks. It's, it's, it's not, you know. It's both though. I mean, it, so it is, the five bucks is, you know, the annual appeal that you go out to all the staff and say, hey, you know, we work in a charitable organization. We should believe in our organization and we should show it by joining this campaign. And then I'm going to go out to the community and I'm going to tell them that we believe in it and we've already raised this much and ask them to join us with a gift. I typically like to ask for, at the time, I'd like to go to someone and have some knowledge about their background and who they are and make an ask that was reasonable for them. So I may sit down and have lunch with you and after you've cultivated a relationship over time, not the first time you meet them, obviously, but I may say, I'd really like you to consider a $10,000 gift to support the cancer center. And here's what we're thinking about with that $10,000. We want to name such and such, or we want to buy this piece of equipment and make it meaningful for you. But hopefully at the point at which I'm asking, I've already gotten to know you. I know where your interests lie. I know that you care about Elliot or that you have a dad who died of cancer. And so that's, a, you know, something that's important to you. You, you get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What were your duties as the vice president for the foundation? Oh. You know, what's <laughs> everything? I mean, aside from having lunch and asking for money, what... everything. Okay. Um, let's see. How big was the staff that was working with you or for you? So when I got there, let's see. We had well, we had a board. So okay. and there there is continues to be a board to okay. this day. So you report to the board, and the board are volunteers from the community. So they have other jobs, and but they oversee the work of the foundation, and they're really a helpful group of people because they're guiding some of what you're doing. But I had oversight of the budget. I was responsible for setting up the campaigns, everything from events, you know, and events are a lot of work. You don't raise as much money. You put a ton of time into creating them, and they're they're wonderful, like all the golf tournaments you see out there. They're a lot of work, and they end up being really wonderful social days not all golf tournaments are huge fundraisers, but, you know, events matter. And why do they matter then? So well, they're not raising a lot well, of money. Why well, do they matter? Because, so for me at Elliott, when, when we would hold the golf tournaments, it gave me an opportunity to get the senior leaders of the organization, some of the doctors, out of the hospital, onto the golf course where they could press the flesh with some of the donors that I wanted, I wanted them to meet. And, Getting them out to sit down and have a sandwich wasn't going to work, but getting them on the golf course for a day of fun and pressing the flesh worked. So, you know, and, and why, when I say it works, because people want to know who these folks are that they're donating to, who's running the organization, who are the doctors taking care of my child or my mother or whomever. And, and it helps them sort of believe a little bit more in what the cause is. You put faces to to an organization, and I, I think it changes things. You know, we're not bricks and mortar. We're sitting here at UNH. It's a beautiful school. But when you get to know people and you believe in people, you typically will consider giving to them. At least that's how yeah. I approached it.
and it works. So they so the, now the donors have they've paid in whatever the fee is to play, but that's not really what you're after. You're after trying to create that relationship so that when you go back to them and say donate ten thousand because you've met Doctor Jones and you know what he does and. It has it has that. the dual role. Okay. I mean, you're gonna fundraise. You're fundraising that day. You've got uh, sponsors and all that okay. stuff. So at the end of the day, have you made money? Yes, and yeah. it's very important. Yeah. But has something else happened during the day Hopefully, that yeah. leads to cultivation of the relationship in a in a in a way that wouldn't happen without some of that time together? That's what's also very important. I see. I see. So you mentioned your board. Mm-hmm. And this is a board that's different than the board for the hospital. Correct. Or for the health system. Yes. Okay. So how does someone come to be on the foundation board? The board was in place when I arrived, and I recall I recall that they actually would go through a selection process of various people in the community and invite them to be on the board. But I don't recall – it's funny you asked that – I don't recall being personally – involved in other words i didn't have i don't think i had a vote i could certainly bring them names but they decided what kind of criteria did they use to fill those seats do you do you recall i don't recall i'm sorry i honestly don't but um i'm sure that it has to do with who can bring other donors to the table who knows who who can open certain doors i mean that's how it works in fundraising Okay. You don't want someone sitting on your board who isn't willing to, A, donate themselves, B, open doors to other resources, people with money, and I shouldn't say it that way, of means, and, you know, just find opportunities that wouldn't otherwise exist. So the, this board is focused on fundraising only because this is the foundation mm-hmm. as opposed to the board of the health system would be focused on operations, financials, everything. Okay. Yeah. So you were in this role until 2006. So you were you were in the role of of vice president for the 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 foundation till 2006, but in 2004 you also started working as the vice president of public affairs and marketing for the Elliott Health System. Yes. You've kind of talked about that a little bit, but I, I just want to back up a second and and can you tell us a little bit about the Elliott Health System just so we get a sense of how big is it? What does it do? Yeah. Um, Elliott Health System is a healthcare provider in southern New Hampshire with Elliott Hospital, a visiting nurse association, the foundation, a for-profit one-day surgery center, and an expansive primary care practice throughout southern New Hampshire as well as uh, specialists throughout southern New Hampshire. We have many ambulatory care sites, so those are buildings where you walk in, you receive care, and you go home. At the end of the day, there are no hospital beds in those buildings. So the Elliott at River's Edge is a great example where there's urgent care and there's orthopedics and that you can get an x-ray or an MRI, but it's it's a outpatient facility. And for Elliott now, two-thirds of our revenue comes from outpatient care, not inpatient care at the hospital because people don't want to go to a hospital unless you're really sick. You want to receive your health care in a place that is a beautiful environment where you can get in, get out, park, and you have a great patient experience. So that's where Elliott Health System is going, and it's I know we're a leader in southern New Hampshire in in this area, and it's an enormous organization. It's probably a $500 million organization with hundreds, how many doctors do we have? Probably like 300 doctors 
and we continue to grow. So it's a pretty exciting place to be. So you were dual-hatted, working both for the system and the foundation. Correct. How did that come about? I mean, so how did it come that you were both still raising money and now you were also the you're also a vice president for the health system now, doing the public affairs and marketing role. We lost our director of marketing. I don't recall that there was a VP, there was a director. And my president and CEO called me into his office and he said, Suzanne, I want you to take over marketing as well. And I said, absolutely not. Nice talking to you. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) And we had that exact conversation four times. I refused. And he would bring me back and ask me again. He was being very nice about it. And he finally, on the fifth time, said, Susanna, please tell me why you won't take this job. I said, Doug, you're going to fire me. That's why I'm not taking the job. I love Elliot. I want to stay here. And you're going to fire me. So I'm not stupid. I'm not taking the job. He said, I'm not going to fire you. I said, oh, yes, you will. (laughs) Why did you think he was going to fire you? He's going to fire me because I had zero knowledge, no studies, no background, zero knowledge of public affairs and marketing. So I thought he was crazy. And he said, you are the best marketer we have. And trust me, you can do this job. So he won. (laughs) I took the job and I said, you know, be gentle with me till I figure this out because I'm going to learn this on the job and I'm going to do the best I can. But I'm warning you, I really don't know this area. And of course, I quickly rolled up my sleeves and started to learn as fast as I could. Okay. So you had the dual-headed job until, was it 2006, I think? <laughs> yeah. And, and at that point, you, then you, you left your responsibilities with the foundation and just focused on your current role, which is public affairs and marketing. Uh, what made that necessary? Why did you stop So with the foundation, I that is? was now, at this point in my life, I'm a mom. I have both roles, and I was back to finding myself at the kitchen table at two in the morning, writing articles and doing all my public affairs and marketing work, basically in the middle of the night. And during the day, trying to get out and and when you're fundraising, you have to be with people. You can't be in your office. So if if you're going into fundraising, you want to be in an office, you're in the wrong profession. (laughs) You have to be out, you have to be social, you have to be with people. So I finally sat Doug down and said, I really can't do both. They, the organization's getting bigger and bigger. The foundation was expanding. You really need to cultivate those relationships. I can't do both and do them both w- as well as you want me to. So I think you should select. And he said, okay. He said, I pick marketing. He said, I told you you'd be the best person for us in public affairs and marketing, and I'm going to put you there because we can find somebody else to take. Where we were in the foundation was in a great place. We had built you know, ourselves to a really steady state. And I agreed with him that there probably is somebody else who works in philanthropy that is more expert than me who could come in and advance Elliot even further. And that has happened, which is exciting. So what do you do as the (laughs) vice president of public affairs and marketing? (laughs) That's so funny. Um, 
What's in a day in the life of Susanna? Oh, well, the nice, like? the, let's see, the nice and the exciting thing is whatever I plan for the day is typically not what happens. <laughs> nice. Healthcare is a moving target and things happen that are very unexpected. The media is a big part of my life and my day. So no matter what I plan, if the media calls me, I'm very responsive and I think that people should be because the media are trying to do their job. So as much as we are busy in healthcare and we're taking care of patients, things happen with either a newsworthy accident, let's say, or someone of interest is ill, of course the media is gonna call and they're gonna wanna know how people are doing, what they call patient condition, or they want experts, your doctors, to talk to them about what does it mean um, when the new suggestion is that mammograms don't have to be given at age 40, that mammograms shouldn't take place until women are 50. How do your doctors feel about that? It's controversial. Well, we, we might want to weigh in on that. You might want to find a doctor who would be willing to talk, and that means stop what you're doing, find the doctor. Just so you know, the media doesn't usually wait. They, their deadlines are very short. So it should completely changes your day. So my, I, you know, I have a schedule meetings and different things that I'm going to be doing. And then I always, in the back of my mind, know you got to be nimble, you got to be ready to drop everything, and it'll all be waiting for you when you come back. <laughs> so you're the organization's primary point of contact for, for media relations. Then. Yes. So it, it, what, Elliot, just so you know, we only have two people in our department. Oh, okay. An enormous so, organization. So there's you and one other myself person. Myself and, and, okay. and one other person. Okay. Correct. All right. How do you manage your relationships with relationships with the press and are there differences between how you interact with reporters from different kinds of media? Elliot's relationship with the media when I took the role was not good and both Doug and I knew that we had to improve the relationship with the union leader, WMUR, you know the major outlets that if you really think about it will help you in the end because there is going to be a day that there's a crisis that you actually need them to help you get the word out to the community about something taking place. So we set ourselves on that path and showed as much respect as we could to reporters that were calling on us to try to offer that expertise when they needed it. Now, you know, years later, I have a relationship with a lot of these people and they're, they're good people, they're nice people. As I said before, they're doing their jobs. I don't treat them differently unless, and I have done this, they break the rules. So, for instance, the rules are, if you want to get an interview or you want information about a patient, you call me or you page me. I will respond to you, or email, I guess. But the point being, you contact me. And I will work, I will stop what I'm doing, I will work on it, and I will let you know if we can help you, if we can't help you, why we can't help you, I will get you a statement, I will get someone on camera, whatever. I have had a situation where I have gone up to a patient room to talk to them on behalf of one of the major news outlets that called me to ask, you know, would you like to be interviewed by a reporter? When I got in the room to talk to that patient, there was a reporter in the room from another outlet, not wearing their credentials, so unidentified, in the patient's room, and hadn't called me. So you didn't show me respect. You're not respecting the patient and the family. 
you're violating the rules. And I walked him out immediately. And I had security make sure he was leaving. Now, I still work with him to this day, but it's totally inappropriate. And it's not, you know, that changes the relationship. And it, it breaches that trust that you have to have to really get through some of these things together. So, I, you know, I, I work really hard for them and I think they for all of us, but I am more than willing to draw a line if you're not going to play by the rules. How has social media changed your interaction with the press? I mean, so you kind of came in just as social media was really taking off. So we were a leader in getting out on Facebook. And I, I know that I was asked by the New Hampshire Hospital Association to speak to my colleagues at early on about what we were doing and why we were doing it and, and where we, the big concern is losing control. So I hired experts. So there are firms out there, obviously, that they have many clients and they're posting all day. And we didn't do it on our own. We did get the expertise of a firm that works in that land of social media who could help us with making sure our posts were professional. But we looked at why we would be even on social media. And we decided that this was going to be another avenue for education and information for the public. It was not going to be a place where the public can post whatever they wanted. So if you don't like the fact that you got a bill, for instance, that doesn't make people happy. Some, for some reason, they think they're going to have health care with no bill. But anyway... But, you know, if you want to write on our Facebook post, our Facebook page about your bill and your frustration with that, I'm going to take it down and I'm going to block you because that's not the purpose for our, our, so just having some set of parameters around why we're doing it helps you have control and maintain control. And we wrote a policy internally so that our staff understood what they can and can't do because they're ambassadors of the health system. So they're part of our image, our brand, and on your individual page, if you are disparaging Elliot, you're representing Elliot, and we have a problem with that. Now, I get that people have First Amendment rights, and they can, they're free to speak to a point, because if you are now looking like you're speaking on behalf of Elliot as a representative, and we haven't asked you to do that for us, um, that's where you can get in some trouble. Do you run into those kinds of situations? Oh, yes. <laughs> but I think people, it's just, I think it's been a learning curve. Unfortunately, uh -huh. you know, you have those situations where people, I think, don't mean to do something that's harmful to the organization, but they do, and they don't quite understand the rules. They'll do a course correction, if you point it out. If they won't do a course correction, you have a little bit of a different issue. So you mentioned the rules working with reporters. Are there rules of public affairs that you try to follow? Rules of public affairs. Or guidelines that you kind of follow. I guess it depends on how you define public affairs. Because I'm not sure how you're defining it in your mind. Well, why don't you define it? Because you're the vice president of public <laughs> affairs. You tell me. I mean, for me, public affairs is everything visible. Okay. So, you know, and again, I don't have a background in this, so I don't know what the textbook definition of public affairs is. But anything that reflects Elliot is my business. And it should be. So, does that answer your question? Well, yeah. So, what do you, what, how do you go about trying to nurture? So, my next question was, how do you go about trying to nurture the brand? 
you know, what is a brand and what's Elliot's brand and how do you try to develop that? I think Elliot's doing a good job of nurturing the brand in a couple of different ways. And the first and foremost for me is starting with people. So I go to new hire orientation and do a welcome. So 50 people in a room who are just bright and shiny and about to start their career at Elliot, which is exciting. I really truly mean that. And they get their badge and I do a brief PowerPoint presentation. But part of what I'm telling them is you just got invited into a really special family and a family where we hold a place of trust in this community. The community looks to us for their healthcare needs. They're scared, they're frustrated, they're sick, they want to be well, they want to be inspired. There's a lot going on. And you are part of the family and the team that will allow that fabulous experience or not. And here's what's not acceptable, not <laughs> performing in a way that helps people, that is caring, that is compassionate, that is thoughtful, and that reflects well on us as an organization. And I tell them, I take my badge off and I hold it up. I said, not everyone gets one of these. And when you do, you are now an ambassador of this health system. And I promise you, you will have a fabulous career here if you remember that today. That's what I want you to take away. I'm going to tell you something else. If you don't and you're not a good ambassador, we take this away from you. <laughs> and you will have to go find a career elsewhere. Yeah. And the grass is not greener. Yeah. So really care about this and yeah. be a good ambassador. And I think starting with people is the most critical thing. Uh, outside of that, nurturing our brand, we do in a number of different ways. Part of it is in terms of our strategy and what we set for goals as an organization, what we want to do for the community. Part of it has to do with the work that I do that's visible in what you see and what you read. So when you get a newsletter in your home that comes from the public affairs and marketing department, is it useful to you? Is it good information? Do you enjoy the articles? Are you finding the programs and classes that you want to keep you healthy and well? You know, did you enjoy having a, I don't know, a recipe at, you know, a new recipe for your grill <laughs> so, or that kind of thing? Right. So it's, you know, it's everything, but I think we nurture the brand in, in you know, endless ways. So is there a difference between public affairs and marketing in your mind, or is it all kind of one continuum? I, no, I think there, I guess the difference in my mind in marketing is the work I'm doing to create top of mind awareness in the community. Okay. So I want people to think Elliot when they think healthcare. So when we're marketing, we're trying to saturate the market with either a name, a service, or an attribute like trust in our doctors that draws the public to us to choose us for healthcare. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about in the end. Are you voting or not with your feet? And we'll know by the numbers. What's the difference between internal and external communication? And why do you need internal communication? So we've kind of been talking about, you were saying about your newsletter and some other kind of intentional stuff. What about internal communication? What is that? Internal communication is absolutely critical in an organization, and probably in any organization, but in, in our organization, it's 
because we're so big, we talk a lot about communication internally. And it, it's basically, it starts with the audience. What's the difference between your audience? So internally, you're talking to your doctors, your nurses, your staff. You're talking to the people who are wearing that badge that I talked about earlier, who are or are not going to make patient experience excellent, who are or are not going to take care of each other. Um, and we communicate in many different ways. So a, a lot of it is email communication. We do open forums where we stand in front of our staff and our doctors and have a dialogue about what's going on. Um, we do celebrations and events. We have internal newsletters. I mean, the reason why we round physically, I'll go to departments and say, hi, I'm Susanna. Tell me what you do. Are you happy? What can I do to help you? You know, tell me more about what makes you uh, feel like you're supporting the strategic plan of Elliot. Sometimes they know, sometimes they don't. Do you even understand the strategic plan? Can I help you understand it? Um, how are we doing financially? You know, when you get into the department and they get excited to show you what they do all day, typically they are even more jazzed to say, here's how we're advancing the overall mission of the organization, which is so exciting. But the, all of that communication really matters because it, it makes you a cohesive group of people. It, and we're so spread out across southern New Hampshire. So it's not easy. Um, I don't think we're perfect at it, but we do try very hard. Um, are there important ways that communication strategy has evolved over the 14 years, 13 years you've been doing this role now? Yeah, I think, I think the most important way it's evolved is getting back to face-to-face -to -face communication. Okay. There are so many ways to communicate that do not put you face-to-face -face with other people that you lose the personal connection, the relationships, and at the end of the day, we all want to feel like we are cared for somewhat by our leaders, our mentors, each other. Um, our internal survey tells us that our staff actually really loves working together. They really enjoy each other. And you see that when you go out and round in the departments, but you're face to face. So we have evolved now to a place where the open forums where we have that dialogue and the um, rounding by senior leaders is critical to our communication and I think to sort of the overall feeling and culture of the organization. But that direct communication is probably the best thing that we've gotten back to. You mentioned rounding. Mm -hmm. Is that a part of the, your strategy? Is, is that something that you promote and try to push your leaders to do? Or is it something that they're doing as part of a different aspect of the strategy? It is a, it is a strategy by the senior leaders. We all agree and nobody has to push each other. We, we agreed as a group that we will get out. And round. So we block our calendars and set aside weeks to go out, leave our offices, and know that each of us were all out somewhere in the health system rounding. So this month, I have a ton of rounding. I, I just looked at it. I, I don't know. I must be hitting at least 15, 16 departments. And you just go one after the other after the other. But it's, it's a little exhausting, but it's so exciting. And 
you realize that it's time well spent at the end of the day. Get a lot of emails thanking us for the time and, and for the, you know, people meet me and they go, oh my God, you're, you're the person who sends us the newsletter. Well, I get your emails all the time when you're trying to keep us up to date on what's going on with affiliation or something like that, you know, and they put a face to the name that they're getting all this other communication electronically. Now they get to know me as yeah. a person and I yeah. get to know them and it's just so much better. So rounding is something that we are very committed to as a senior team and it's definitely having a positive impact. What do you do with that information? So you go out, you round. Is there something that you follow up afterwards with that as a group, as a leadership team? or Yes. We sit, we, we do spend some time working on sort of things we've learned, issues that are popping up in various areas that seem to be a trend. We are not there to resolve human resource issues. Those do come up and you just have to redirect people. I mean, I'm not going to be able to change your benefits while I'm standing in your department. Um, and that's not why I'm there. So we just redirect them on how to get help with something they may not understand. But yeah, as a senior leadership team, we do talk about what we're learning, what we're seeing, how the, you know, the pulse of the organization, what we think is needed to adjust culture or that kind of thing. So we take it seriously, but we're not, we're not doing it so that we come back and have a list of 65 things we now have to fix, like that Sue has a broken chair and, you know, this person needs a new piece of equipment. It's, it's not that. It's, it's more relationship and culture setting. So you've talked about culture a couple of times. What is your role as the public affairs marketing person with respect to kind of nurturing the culture at Elliott? And, and what is organizational culture and why is it important? I actually don't think it's my responsibility. Okay. I think it's our responsibility. I think every member of the organization has some responsibility for the culture. I know that at the senior leadership table and from the board, you know, we want to set a culture of our mission, inspiring wellness, healing our patients, and serving with compassion in every interaction. And that service piece is big, and that service piece is internal and external. So how we serve each other and how we serve the community and patients and families that come to us. And we take it seriously. I think that, you know, in healthcare, you want to do the best you can by people every day. And oftentimes, that empathy can fall aside, fall to the wayside because you have things going on in your own life. But we try to, you know, instill in people that, we're here because we care about other people and we want to inspire, heal, and serve. So, you know, as I walk around, if I'm grumpy and I walk by three people and I don't ever say hello, I'm setting the culture. But so are they if they walk by me and have their head down and don't say hello. So we have service excellence training. We have people working hard to make sure that the environment in which we're working is respectful, somewhat welcoming, joyous, not off the wall, but because obviously it's healthcare, but friendly at the end of the day and transparent and communicative, all of those things that ultimately result in staff engagement and satisfaction and positive patient experience. What mistakes do healthcare executives make when dealing with the press? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, speculation, guessing. <laughs> you know, I always tell people you can't quote silence. Okay. <laughs> so stop talking if you don't know the answer. <laughs> don't speculate. Don't guess. And wait, tell me your question again. So, well, what kind of mistakes do do leaders, do healthcare leaders, make when dealing with the press? Man, I, I think I, I think what I said earlier is is yeah, okay. is correct. So don't me, speculate. Yeah, and let me say it differently. Okay. I think the biggest mistake you can make when dealing with the press is not being factual. Okay. So I always, when the press calls, especially if it's a controversial issue, you typically know those calls are coming. You'll know that you probably have already started working on a strategy to communicate externally if there is an issue internally that you are aware of that is likely to be newsworthy. What you have to do and what you have to media train the spokesperson to do is understand, know the facts and stick with the facts. Because if you don't, you will head down a road that is very tricky and really may end up being bad for you in your career. You can be a career changer and very bad for the organization, which is also typically a career changer. <laughs> so I like to first gather facts and help people understand what are the facts we're dealing with, stick with those, and I always media train people before they talk to the press because I don't want them guessing, I don't want them speculating, and as I say all the time, shut your mouth and be quiet because they can't quote silence. That sounds like a lawyerly kind of answer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> well, let me ask you that. Um, how did how did your previous work as an attorney, uh, and then also your director of development work, prepare you for the role you're in now? I think I use my skills every day, in everything I do. I mean, from simple things like writing memos. That's intimidating for some people. Writing is not intimidating for me because when you're a lawyer, you have to write. You have to write your pleadings. You have to write your memos of law. So communication is very important and words are important and the use of words. I think that being able to stand on your feet, represent yourself or another person or an organization is something that I am well equipped to do because of the practice of law. I, I think I use the skills every day. I mean, I, I would, if, if people are listening to this, trying to figure out what career to go into, you're never ever making a bad decision by becoming a lawyer. A lot of lawyers do not practice law. They do a million other things. But it's just incredible skills that you learn in law school. You're a vice president. And what does that mean? And what responsibilities does that imply beyond your formal title of, of public affairs and marketing? So as a vice president and a leader of Elliott Health System, we have responsibility for everything we talked about from culture, but also to the strategic plan, uh, the direction of the organization, how are we doing financially, are we taking care of our people, are we planning for the future. In other words, if you have a practice of physicians, for example, and three are about to retire and there's only five, you better have a plan for how you're going to fill those positions and, you know, continue to serve the patients. So, I mean, our, as leaders of the organization, as vice presidents, I'm not, 
I don't consider myself just public affairs and marketing. I consider myself a vice president of a huge not-for-profit organization upon which the community relies and 4,000 staff members rely for their career, for their paying of their mortgage, taking care of their kids. I mean, there's a lot of responsibility with it, but I, I love that part. I love being one of those nurturers from the position of a vice president. You mentioned strategy. Where are you involved? How are you involved in the creation and development of the strategic? All the vice presidents are involved, and we work with the board directly on strategic planning and looking at sort of what are the current goals. We set our strategic plan as a, as a three-year plan. You'd love to have like a three- to five-year plan. And my involvement after strategy is set and, in, you know, the, all the meetings that take place to get to the strategic plan, which is like brainstorming sessions and understanding data and some presentations. After that, it's about participating in what we call, we have six strategic pillars. So I participate on pillar teams, and we also help push the information down to directors, managers, and the staff so that they get an understanding of what the strategy is and how they individually play a part in each of our strategic pillars. So you've been working as the Vice President of Public Affairs and Marketing since 2004. How has your role evolved over time, over that time, and what have you learned? My role has evolved mainly because I've become more knowledgeable in what I'm doing, more confident in what I'm doing, and we've had a change in leadership. So as a 16-year CEO leaves the organization and a new one comes in, my role shifts to not just being one of the vice presidents who report to that CEO and help carry out the mission of the organization. Now I become a teacher. So the new CEO comes in. He doesn't know us. And someone has to take him by the arm, which is each of the vice presidents in their own way become the teachers as well as the staff, to be honest. I mean, everybody became a teacher, but all of us have had to do some evolving because the organization is going through change. Our CEO came and went in two years, so we're in a different transition again now where we're all linking arms tightly because we don't have a CEO at Elliott at this moment, and the entire staff, all the physicians, are looking to the vice presidents to steady the ship, make sure everything is going well, and that we really have our eyes on all of the operations, making sure we're, we're in a good place. Elliot's in a wonderful place. The truth is we have such a good leadership team. The vice presidents are so strong in what their, their knowledge base and what they're doing and their skill and expertise that we are in a good place and the board feels comfortable while they go out for a national search, which will take months and months and months to get the next CEO. So it'll, it'll continue to evolve. But I think with anything, you know, day to day, I, I've gotten better at, at what I'm doing just because I know the ropes now where I didn't know how to place media before. I can call WMUR, call my account executive at the union leader. I know how to, nego how to negotiate my rates and get my placement and, and have a run and so forth. So it's, it, 
it, it's evolved, but partly based on just that knowledge base that has increased over time. I want to ask just a couple of questions about leadership. So what would you say is your leadership philosophy? Uh, my leadership philosophy is definitely there is nothing that I'd ask you to do that I won't do myself. And I am a, a, an extremely hard worker. I hold myself to a high standard, and I feel like I instill in other people the ability to do the same where they might not believe in themselves quite as much as they should, but I think if they apply themselves a little bit more and really roll up their sleeves, they're going to find that, that they can do just about anything they set their mind to. And I think I'm an example of that. I mean, I still kind of laugh. I giggle that, like, do I really have any business in public affairs and marketing? But here I am. And you know what? I'm not half bad at it. I may not be the best, but I'm not half bad. And it's because I really try my heart out all the time. So I think that people respect and like me as a leader because I get my hands dirty right there next to them. Um, I am real. I'm a mother. I tell people who are have families, you're a mother first. You're a father first. So go home. Take care of your sick child. You don't have to apologize or beg me. But that's part of life. And there's probably a more important more important part of life than being here. So um, sort of all of those things are my style. Okay. <laughs> Being just nice and a good person to people. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in your role, you've both been a, you've been a vice president for a long time, but you also in your role as a, as a person in charge of communications, you get a chance to see a lot of leaders operating. Mm -hmm. What makes a good leader? I think a good leader is someone who is willing to share knowledge and expertise mentor other people up, recognize and congratulate and give the accolades deserved to the people who were actually responsible for things that make you look good. I think the biggest pitfall that I see in leaders who don't make it in my world, vice presidents of healthcare systems, directors, others, there's power that comes with it. And power can be a very dangerous thing for some people because they'll misuse it. And I saw it as a lawyer, and I sued people for it, uh, and interesting. I okay. see it now. And if you misuse power, you're not going down a positive road. It will bite you. It'll get you sooner or later. And I typically identify it pretty quickly, and I watch it. And I have even asked people to course correct. Some people do, and some people don't. But their fate is theirs, and, and when they fail, they fail because of themselves, not because of anybody else. You've held positions both of direct leadership as well as positions of influence without necessarily direct authority. So you're just talking about mm -hmm. power. Yeah. What's important about the difference? And how do you lead without necessarily having the authority? Um, I don't You know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't call a group of doctors together make a decision and then go to the chief medical officer and say, well, we had this meeting, we made this decision. That would be wrong. But what I can do is sit with a group of doctors and say, what's on your mind? What's happening? How do you feel? Let me take this back to the chief medical officer who couldn't be here today and share with him this session and see what we can come up with. You know, 
you have the authority to gather information. You have the authority to understand what's going on, good and bad. And if you're a good leader, you know how to take information and use it for the greater good and find ways to get to the right people, inform them in a non-threatening way that helps lead to things that have to happen, either a decision or a change or an improvement or something like that. I guess that's how I see it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned mentoring a second ago. Yeah. So I like to ask about mentoring because it's a it's an area of interest for me. Did you have mentors early in your career? It sounds like you did. Oh, yeah. And and maybe not just early in your career, but throughout your career. Have you had mentors? And, and what did they do to help you? Absolutely. I don't know anyone who doesn't have a mentor, but I'd be, be shocked surprised. and amazed. You'd be surprised. <laughs> I'd get people say, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't, you know. Okay, well, so my mentors, my mom and dad. Okay. And they continue to be my mentors. I'm lucky they're still alive and, and healthy and well, but... They're people who have said to me since I was very young, if you're not learning and growing every day, you're not doing it right. So, <laughs> you know, I have a thirst for knowledge and growth and, and, and it came from them. I think that that's incredible mentoring by a parent yeah. and it's great guidance for anybody listening. I think that my mentor as a lawyer, Chuck Douglas, it was different mentoring. It was how to be great at this particular role. I mean, he is a great litigator. He is just smashing in the courtroom. And it's shocking to see in action. It's almost like watching a movie. It's very exciting. Because <laughs> he does things you wouldn't think of doing or that are gutsy. And that mentorship showed me that there's sort of a uh, envelope you can push, you know, there's an edge you can walk on that brink and teeter right there and it might be worth it, though it's scary. In healthcare, Doug Dean, my CEO, is a huge mentor to me. And more in terms of the teachings of the humanity of healthcare and sort of that environment in which we live and work and some of the importance of making sure you keep a strong check on the humanity side of life, why you're trying to do all these things that are stressful and may be hard and may make you frustrated and all of, there's, there's all of that at play, but you, you know, have to balance it still with that humanity. I really credit him for that. And I like, I just enjoy being a mentor. I mean, you probably do too as a teacher. Absolutely. So people look to you and, and want to learn from you and want to grow in some way. And that's a really exciting part of of life right now for me. I, I love when people look to me to say, help me learn, help me grow. Do you have those kinds of relationships ongoing? Oh, absolutely, yeah. What do you look to do when someone reaches out to you and says, I'm looking for a mentor? I say yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> I say, what do you want to learn? What yeah, do you want to, okay. I mean, it, it depends on what it is. I mean, okay. if, if you call me and say, help mentor my class by teaching, I'll do that. If yeah. it's, if it's just at work every day and somebody says, I just don't understand how this works and I'm going to a meeting where I think they can get a better understanding of how the, how whatever it is works, I take them along. So, for instance, crisis management, big part of what I do. Um, I have to have a second to me because I may not be available. The person who works with me 
has great skill. She doesn't have the confidence I have. So when there's a crisis, I take her with me because even though I can do it, I want her with me so she sees what I do. So she, the next time when she's alone, will say, I remember Susanna did this first, this second, this third. And that experience of witnessing it and being a part of it is great mentoring, in my opinion, because she leaves with not just words that I said, oh, this is what I do. She sees it in action. She gets to play a part of that. I mentor her by the last time, to be honest with you, we had a drill. It was just practice. I didn't show up. She had to go. That's mentoring. Did she know you weren't going to show up? Uh, she got notice of it, and but you know, I went to the I went to the debrief. They raved about her in the debrief, nice. and that's what you want. So that's how I know I'm succeeding. She's succeeding. Yeah. Yeah. What leadership counsel do you most often give to young leaders or or, or new leaders? Well, I know I, I. It's funny. I just taught a. I was a high school class, and. I thought that they wouldn't even care what the heck was coming out of my mouth. I thought, oh, this is weird, high school. But it's funny because I, I wanted to inspire them. So like I'm saying to you today, you know, the sky's the limit. You're only limited by whatever you limit yourself to. So if you have a thought about being anything and you really want to pursue it, pursue it. You can stop. You can throttle back and say, all right, that wasn't, that wasn't the best for me. But until you try it and you get your feet wet, you may not know. So go ahead and try it. I, I also tell people not to forget sort of who you are and being true to yourself. And for me, being true to myself in this, at this point in my life is mostly about taking care of my son because he's 13 years old. He's going to grow up. So I'm not missing his soccer game. I'm going. I'm not apologizing for that. All the work will be here when I get back, but I'm going to go and support my child because that's being true to who I am. I'm a mom. So I want, I, I, I created that role for myself. I'm not abandoning it now. I'm going to take part in that very important part of my life and take care of all the work as well. So I'd say, you know, set your goals high, try things. Be true to yourself and for the most part, enjoy what you're doing. Because if you don't love it at the end of the day and you're not having fun when you wake up in the morning to get dressed to go to do whatever it is you do, you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> so last question, what advice would you give early careerists who are thinking about a career maybe in marketing and communications sounds interesting? What should they, you know, if they were saying, I'd like to do what Susanna does, what should they be studying? What should they, what experiences should they seek out? What guidance would you give them? Well, if they're interested in it, then pursue it. So certainly if there are college courses that will help them advance their knowledge and, but most of all, I'm back to experience it. So if you can get in the door somewhere to act as an intern or spend even a day, so you walk in the shoes of someone like myself, you're going to see firsthand and experience it and perhaps either love it or decide this isn't for me. And so when I give the example way back at the beginning of this interview of me going and sitting in a courtroom when I was in law school, I was, I guess, in a way, just trying to see if I like it. And I loved it. So I went back day after day after day after day. 
And, you know, it's, it's that kind of, uh, self-motivation to experience things that I think really will help determine whether you are in the right field or not. But find the courses, study hard, get as much knowledge as you can, because the way I did this, learning on the job, definitely challenging. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing very well. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been great. And thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community. And we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.